Ah, I'm so glad you're here. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Lord Bloodraw. I host horror and science fiction films on my TV series, Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Rack and Theater, but here, in this cool, intimate darkness, I'll be presenting tales of horror and the uncanny solely for you, alone. In this auditorium within your mind, you will coalesce the settings and the players from the ether of your imagination. Your terror will be your own creation. This is the sorcery of sound, the subtle magic of old-time radio. Horror. Horror. Please leave your eyes at the door. You will not need them. This is Lord Bloodraw's nerve-wracking auditorium. Thank you for joining us on this most glorious night. This Halloween night. Ah, can you feel it? Spirits moving in the air. Can you see it? The shadows. So deep, so black, and something there in the shadows, beckoning, waiting. We won't keep them waiting any longer. They, like you, are here in the theater of your imagination, craving the dark magic of old-time radio horror. Let's indulge that craving, shall we? Tonight, for our Halloween treat, we have two tales from the series The Black Mass. First, a classic tale from the mind of the master of eldritch things, H.P. Lovecraft. It's a story of ancient evils and the undying call of the blood. Here is The Rats in the Wall. Welcome to the Black Mass. One of the foremost writers of pure horror and the supernatural is H.P. Lovecraft. He regarded all his work as based on the idea that the world was inhabited at one time by another race, which in practicing black magic lost its foothold and was expelled, yet lives on, outside, ever ready to take possession of this earth again. Tonight, we bring you one of his most famous tales, The Rats in the Walls, by H. P. 
Lovecraft. The restoration of Exum Priory had been a stupendous task. For little had remained of the deserted pile but a shell-like ruin. But because it had been the seat of my ancestors, I let no expense deter me. The place had not been inhabited since the reign of James I, when a tragedy of intensely hideous, though largely unexplained nature, occurred. It appeared that my ancestor was accused, with much reason, of having killed all the other members of his household in their sleep. This deliberate slaughter, which included his father, as well as three brothers and two sisters, was strangely condoned by the villagers and slackly treated by the law. With this sole heir nevertheless legally denounced as a murderer, the estate had reverted to the crown, the accused man making no attempt to exculpate himself or regain his property. Shaken by some horror greater than that of conscience or the law, and expressing only a frantic wish to exclude the ancient edifice from his sight and memory. Walter de la Power fled to the United States, where, by the end of several generations, the family had achieved a proud and honorable, if somewhat reserved and unsocial, Virginia line. After the Civil War, the family moved north. I emerged and grew to manhood, to middle age, and to ultimate wealth within the greyness of a Massachusetts business life. My wife, Emily, died shortly after the birth of our only son, Alfred. And Alfred, in the Aviation Corps in 1917, they both had died leaving me old, bereaved, and aimless, a retired manufacturer. I travelled, eventually to England, eventually to Anchester, eventually to the ancient family seat, Exum Priory itself, a jumble of tottering medieval ruins covered with lichens, perched perilously upon a precipice, denuded of floors and other interior features save the stone walls and the separate towers. The priory had been allotted to the estate of the Norris family by the crown. And now, three centuries later, I purchased the ruin for a surprisingly reasonable figure and resolved to divert my remaining years by restoring restoring my ancestral home.
I had secured the interest, assistance, and the friendship of Captain Norris, whose knowledge of the place had been increased through the years by his having accompanied the many architects and antiquarians who loved to examine the strange relic. The uh, mind you put on that big stone yes. over there, <laughs> the, um, the architecture, you see, is peculiarly composite. Uh, Gothic towers resting mm, over there yes. on Saxon or Romanesque substructure, the uh, foundation is of a still earlier order, blend of orders, I suppose, Roman or even Druidic or native Cymric, if legends speak truly, and merged on the one side, you see, down here, with the yeah. solid limestone of the precipice. Amiable Captain Norris. The place and its ancestry had an almost consuming fascination for him. He knew every detail of its history and its former structure and became of inestimable help in the reconstruction. The uh, priory itself actually stands on the site of a prehistoric temple. Yes. A druidical or anti-druidical thing which must have been contemporary of mm, Stonehenge and dates like that. Well, it's unfortunate that our neighbours aren't all antiquarians such as you, Captain Norris. I had not been in Anchester a day before I knew I came from an accursed house. Oh, yes, the country folk around here have their own sense of tradition, I'm afraid. They hated the Priory hundreds of years ago when your ancestors lived here. And they hate it now, with the moss and mould of abandonment on it. We'll have to go outside of the immediate vicinity for our workers. You see, it isn't so much hatred as the, the almost unbelievable fear they have of the place. And the scope appears to include both the Priory and, I'm afraid, its ancient family. Yes, I, I don't seem to be able to convince the villagers how little I know of my heritage. Oh, but to them a lineage is beyond a message of knowing. It's in the bone and blood itself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I disagree. But what do we see? After three centuries, a power has returned to his ancient site to reconstruct the very house. And for the villagers... You've come to restore a symbol abhorrent to them. Oh. Rational or not, you know, they view Exum Priory as nothing less than a haunt of fiends and werewolves. <laughs> Captain Norris, <laughs> superstition. Well. Superstitions, ghosts and goblins. Oh, no, not quite that. No, ah, no. you share their worries, nevertheless. Well, so would you, Pyre. Yeah. It's not a matter of the present, and it's not all superstition. Yeah. This is an ancient place, Pyre. That indescribable rites had been celebrated here, no one doubts. Rites of the Sibylli worship, which the Romans had introduced. Yeah. Inscriptions still visible in the subcellar of the Priory bear the unmistakable letters and signs of Magna Mater, whose dark worship was once vainly forbidden to Roman citizens. Mm. About a thousand AD, the place is mentioned as being a substantial stone priory housing a strange and powerful monastic order and surrounded by extensive gardens. You will see them right over there. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Now, mind that uh, stone there. <coughs> you know, the people didn't need any walls to keep them out. They were too frightened of the place altogether. Mm. It was never destroyed by the Danes, oddly enough. After the Norman conquest, it must have declined tremendously. There was no impediment when Henry III granted the site to your ancestor, Gilbert de la Poa, he was called then. First Baron Exum in, I think, 12... Yes, 1261. Yes, well, then it's the location, the house, not the family that inherits the bad name. Oh, they became aligned, you see. Yeah. And not, so far as we know, unwillingly. True, before their occupation, the family bore no evil report... But something strange must soon have occurred. You know, in one chronicle, there's a reference to Adela Poa as cursed of God. It's a strange phrase. Village legendary had nothing but evil and frantic fear to tell of the castle. The fireside tales were of the most grisly description. All the... Mind your head, darling. Yeah. All the ghastlier because of their frightened reticence and cloudy evasiveness... I'm afraid they represented your ancestors as a race of hereditary demons. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but what precisely happened, Norris? What went on? Well, there are the vaguer tales. Hackneyed spectral law, perhaps. Mm. Wails and the usual howlings heard around the place. Graveyard stench after the spring rains. The servant girl who'd gone mad at what she saw in the full light of day in the priory. <laughs> The accounts of vanished peasants are less to be dismissed, though not especially significant in view of medieval custom. Prying curiosity meant death, and yes. more than one severed head had been publicly shown on the bastions around Exum Priory. 
yes. Uh, well, <laughs> it's difficult. A few of the tales were exceedingly picturesque. For instance, the belief that a legend of bat-winged devils kept witches' Sabbath each night of the Priory, a legend <laughs> whose sustenance must explain the disproportionate abundance of coarse vegetables harvested <laughs> in the gardens. <laughs> but most, most vivid of all, there was the dramatic epic of the rats. The rats? Yes, the scampering army of obscene vermin which had burst forth from the castle a couple of months after the tragedy that doomed the place to desertion three centuries ago now. You know, a lean, filthy, ravenous army which had swept all before it and devoured fowl, cats, dogs, hogs, sheep, and, you know, even two villagers before its fury was spent. Yes, around that unforgettable rodent army a cycle of myths revolved. It scattered among the village homes and brought curses and horrors in its train. Ah, yes, and that was just three months after Walter de la Parra had murdered his family and fled to Virginia. Yes, yes, I should say about that. You know, one thing puzzles me about that murder. Walter de la Parra must have known for years the sinister tales about his family, so that this material could have given him no fresh impulse. I can scarcely conjecture what discovery could have prompted an act so terrible. What had he witnessed or stumbled upon? Oh, uh, take this path down here. Right, yes. yeah. the, um, well, the general whispered sentiment seems to have been that he purged the land of a memorial curse. Such was the law that assailed me as I began with an elderly obstinacy, the work of restoring my ancestral home. While living with Captain Norrie's family during the restoration of the Priory, I collected many such tales of superstition or fact, but it must not be imagined that they formed my principal psychological environment. I was constantly praised and encouraged by Captain Norrie's and the antiquarians who surrounded and aided me. When the task was done, over two years after its commencement, I viewed the great rooms with pride. Wainscotted walls, vaulted ceilings, mullioned windows, broad staircases, all there, all as it had been. Every attribute of the Middle Ages was cunningly reproduced. The new parts blended perfectly with the original stone walls and foundations. The seat of my father's was complete. And I looked forward to redeeming at last the local fame of the line, which ended with me. The interior of the old house was, in truth, wholly new and free from old vermin and old ghosts. The first incident occurred six days after I moved into the Priory. That night, dispensing as usual with a valet, I retired to the West Tower chamber which I had chosen as my own. The room was circular, very high, and without wainscoting, the stones being hung with tapestries. I did not draw the curtains, but gazed out at the narrow north window which I faced from the canopied four-poster. At some time, I must have fallen quietly asleep for I recall a distinct sense of leaving strange dreams. As I awoke, I found myself looking intensely at a point on the wall a point to which my eye had nothing to mark it, but toward which all my attention was directed. Whether the tapestry actually moved, I cannot say. I think it did very slightly. But what I can swear to is that behind it I heard a low, distinct scurrying, as of mice or rats. Then it was gone. Some sort of effect of echo, perhaps, coming from some other area of the house. There was no need of my looking behind the arras, for the walls were of solid stone, 
several feet thick. It was a while before I could drift back to sleep, and I seemed directly to re-enter my earlier dream, except that this time the vision was clearly horribly before me. I, I seemed to be looking down, down from an immense height upon a, a twilight grotto, knee-deep with filth where a white-bearded demon, a swineherd, drove about with his staff a flock of fungus beasts whose appearance filled me with unutterable loathing. Then, as the swineherd paused and nodded over his task, a mighty swarm of rats rained down on the stinking abyss and fell to devouring beasts and men alike. But suddenly I was awake, wide awake. On every side of the chamber, the walls were alive with nauseous sound. The verminous slithering of ravenous, gigantic rats. Suddenly I was awake, wide awake. On every side of the chamber, the walls were alive with nauseous sound. The verminous slithering of ravenous, gigantic rats. I could see a hideous shaking all over the tapestry. But the motion disappeared almost at once, and the sound with it. I sprang out of bed and tore aside the arras to see what lay beneath it. Nothing. Nothing but the patched stone wall. I, I stepped out of the room and stood for a moment at the head of the great ancient stairway, listening listening to the house. I could hear them. I could hear them faintly at first, but coming from all the walls. And as I descended, the stampeding continued with such force and distinctness that I could finally assign to their motions a definite direction. These creatures, in numbers apparently inexhaustible, were engaged in one stupendous migration from inconceivable heights to some depth inconceivably below. Rats? When I questioned the servants, they said they heard nothing. I didn't want to alarm them by insisting. No, I wasn't dreaming, Norris. It was no dream. But there have been no rats at the Priory for 300 years. Even the field mice couldn't be found in these high walls. Wherever would they be found in walls of solid stone? Mm. You say they were headed downward. Captain Norris helped me explore the subcellar, but absolutely nothing untoward was found. We could not, however, repress a thrill at the knowledge that this vault was built by Roman hands. You see up here, it's not the debased Romanesque of the bungling Saxons, but the severe and harmonious classicism of the age of the Caesars. Look here at these inscriptions. T.M. Tempdona, Lucius Praecius, Pontificatus, or is it Attis? Yes. Hmm. Attis. The reference made me shiver, for I had read Catullus and knew something of the hideous rites of the Eastern God, whose worship was so mixed with that of Sibylle. Look, hold your uh, lantern up here. No, not, not that yes. one. Look, by the stone block here. Oh, yes, I see. Yes, you see the design cut into it? A sort mm. of rayed sun? Mm. That's not Roman. No, that's not Roman at all. It's of an earlier origin. These, these altars had merely been adopted by the Roman priests from some older, perhaps, aboriginal temple on the same site. Come down here. Let's have a look down here. Nuris and I determined to pass the night in the crypt, and couches were brought down by the servants. We retired with the lanterns still burning to await whatever might occur. The vault was very deep in the foundations of the Priory, and that it had been the goal of the scuffling and unexplainable rats, I could not doubt. But why? Why? As we lay there expectantly, 
I found my vigil occasionally mixed with half-formed dreams. I saw the twilight grotto and the swine herd. The fungus beasts wallowing in filth. They seemed nearer, nearer and more distinct. I, I could almost observe their features. Beasts, but not exactly beasts. They became more distinct as I watched, looking up at me. Terrifying. Terrifying! Norris! Norris, wake up, Norris! Wake up, wake up! What? What's wrong? Did you hear? Did you hear them? Did you hear them, Norris? What? What? The rats! Rats? I, I heard... I heard nothing, nothing at all. Still downward. They were they were going still farther oh, down. No. There are cellars below us, Norris. Cellars? Norris, was it hallucination? Was it madness? Why have they stopped? Why have they stopped? Why why is it silent now? Mm -mm. Perhaps you've been shown what certain forces wish to show you. They were headed downward. In this altar. See, Norris. The lantern, the lantern flickers at the crevice here between the altar and the floor. There must be some kind of... By Jove! There must be some way of descending, some door, some, some kind of entrance. Balanced by some sort of counterweight, I expect. You see, look here, look. Yes. The entire stone pivots aside. By Jove! There's your silver uh, power. Ah... Uh, a horror. A horror. Stone steps descended into an abysmal dark, but scrawled across them as far as we could see. Skeletons, skeletons, attitudes of panic, fear, all over them. The marks of rodent gnawings. A ghastly array of human or semi-human bones. Cretinism. Semi-apedom. We descended the hellishly littered steps. Mm, horrifying, but extraordinary. Look here. Out through solid rock. Notice the strokes here. Look, according to the direction of them, this passage must have been chiseled from beneath upward. No, look at that. You notice the air. There's a cool movement of air. Probably some fissure in the cliffs above. Yes, look, look, Pa, the stairway ends here. There's light filtering down from somewhere up here. I can't quite see it, but... Hey, it must be morning outside. You know, almost enough light to see. It's a sort of grotto. Enormous. You, you can just barely... The descent from reality had almost prepared me for what was to come. Norris when I reached him, stared out with a look resembling that of the skulls at his feet. Then I followed his eyes over the subterranean world before us. Dear God. We uh, must not uh, underestimate the uh, archaeological importance of such a discovery as this power. The twilight grotto was of enormous height and stretched farther than any eye could see. There were buildings and other architectural remains. In the center, a circle of monoliths, but dwarfed, everything dwarfed by the spectacle on the ground. An insane tangle of bones, human or nearly so. Like a foamy sea, they stretched pastures of demonic frenzy, either fighting off some menace or clutching other forms with cannibal intent. Yes, the skulls suggest a rather baffling mixture. Mostly lower in the scale of evolution than Pithic Anthropus, but in every case definitely human. Actually, some of them seem to be supremely and sensitively developed types. Horror. Horror upon horror. All the bones gnawed. Altars serving as butcher shop and kitchen. Mostly by rats. Yes. Cauldrons. Dining tables. Not all by rats, my Joe. Goblets brown-stained and dry. Horror upon horror. Notice the stone pens over here. For the keeping of herd, I expect, and out of which they must have broken in their last delirium of hunger or rat fear. Herds of some primordial human type. That's oh, fascinating. And there are a row of cells nearly rusted through. 
The tenant's still locked inside. And on the bony forefinger of one, a seal ring with my own coat of arms. Hmm. Strange ideographic carvings here on some of the skulls. Here, look at here. Look at this, Pa. Well, I believe they're Phrygian in origin. Cases of formally arranged bones with parallel inscriptions in Greek and Latin. Still downward, I could hear them. Where else, where else could they draw me? Across the grotto, carrion pits of sword bones, picked bones, open skulls, oh, nightmare chasms, unhallowed centuries grinning their unnameable fancies. Then, then to the edge, of a depth hideously foreshadowed by my dreams. Mm. An apparently boundless depth. Power, there's no end to it. A great mouth lined with human debris, spewing, swallowing, yawning out from the primordial. Power, power, stay out of it, stay out of it, man! The rats, questing new horrors, determined to lead me on. I ran, ran, following them, following them. I heard voices, echoes, but above all that insidious scurrying. I felt them all around me. I was one of them, part of the ravenous army that feasts on the living and the dead. Well, why shouldn't rats eat a Dillard power? As a Dillard power eats forbidden things? No. No, no, I am not that demon in the twilight grotto. It's not Nari's body I tear apart. It's not blood I feast upon and flesh. You faint and fear at what my family do. Blood, I'll stick it. I'll learn you how to pass. What is this wine can be filled by? Magna Mata! Magna Mata! Understand, That is what they said. I said when they found me in the blackness over the half-eaten body of Captain Norris. Now they have blown up Exum Priory and shut me into this barred room at Hardwell. With fearful whispers about my heredity and experience. When I speak of poor Norris, they accuse me of a hideous thing. But they must know that I did not do it. I did not do it. They must know it was the rats. It was the rats whose scampering will never let me sleep. The demon rats that race behind the padding of this room and beckon me down to greater horrors than I have ever known. The rats. The rats they can never hear. The rats. The rats in the walls. was The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. The technical production was by John Whiting. The part of Captain Norris was played by Bernard Mays. The part of De La Power and the adaptation were by your host of the Black Mass, Eric Bowersfeld.
And now, good night. The undying call of the Delapore blood, the call to the darkness and all manner of forbidden things. The call was just too strong to be ignored. Do you feel a calling? Can you ignore it? Perhaps our next offering may offer some diversion from your struggles, from the Black Mass and the mind of M. R. James, comes a tale to be told by the fireside and to keep you awake in the dark. Here is an evening's entertainment. The Black Mass. Tonight, here is a tale about olden times, based, more or less, on the story by Montague Rhodes James, An Evening's Entertainment. Nothing is more common form in old-fashioned books than the description of the winter fireside, where the aged grandam narrates to the circle of children that hangs on her lips story after story of ghosts and fairies, and inspires her audience with a pleasing terror. But we're never allowed to know what the stories were. Here, then, is a problem which has long obsessed me, but I see no way of solving it finally. The aged grandams are gone, and the collectors of folklore began their work too late to save most of the actual stories which the grandams told. Yet such things don't easily die quite out, and imagination working on scattered hints may be able to devise a picture of just such an evening's entertainment. Let's see now. There's the fire burning brightly in the large stone fireplace. On the one side sits the squire, exhausted by a long day after the partridges and replete with food and drink. On the other side, his old mother sits with her knitting and the children, Charles and Fanny, are gathered about her knee. Oh, I want to wind Granny's yarn. You did it last time. No, you did it twice before that. Well, that doesn't count because... Oh, now, now, my dears. You must be very good and quiet or you'll wake your father. And you know what'll happen then. Oh, yes, I know. He'll be wounded, cross-tempered and send us off to bed. What's that? Fie on you, Charles. That's not a way to speak. Now, I was to have told you a story. 
But if you use such like words, I shall. Oh, oh Granny, oh, please. Oh, oh, please, we'll be... Shh, 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 shh. Oh, now I do believe you have woken your father. Uh, hey, look there, Mother, if you can keep them brats quiet. Yes, John, yes, yes, it's too bad. I've been telling them if it happens again, off to bed they shall go. There now. You see, children, what did I tell you? You must be good and sit still. And I'll tell you what. Tomorrow you shall go a blackberry. <gasps> and, and if you bring home a nice basket full, I'll make you some jam. Oh, yes, Granny, do. And I know where the best blackberries are. I, I saw them today. Oh, and where's that, Charles, dear? Uh, I know too, Granny. It, it's in the little lane. Well, it's in the little lane that goes up past Collins' cottage. Charles? Fanny? Whatever you do, don't you dare to pick one single blackberry in that lane. Don't you know? There, how should you? What was I thinking of? Well, anyway, you both mind what I say. Why, shouldn't we pick them? Why shouldn't we pick them? Shh. Remember what I told your father? But, but, Granny, why? Very well, then. I'll tell you about it. Only you mustn't interrupt. Here, Fanny, you can take the knots out of this skein for Granny. Now, let me see. Oh, my, sounds like a storm blowing up outside, doesn't it, children? Well, no matter. We are safe and warm inside, aren't we? Well, now, that lane. All this, mind you, happened when I was quite a little girl. That lane was feared even then, and as far back as anyone can remember. And if something that happened to your granny on that lane is any indication, I've often wondered if there was any connection between what I saw and all that about Mr. Davis and his friend that I'm about to tell you. What did you see, Granny? Yes, what did you see, Granny? What did you see? Well, you know that lane passes near to the top of that hill, uh, where you've seen that old figure cut out in the crag. Well, I was passing along there one evening. I was already late getting home for my supper. But I remember seeing the currant and gooseberry bushes along the side leading to the top of the hill. The berries were ever so ripe and delicious. And before I realized, I had followed them, tasting one bush, then another, near to the top of the hill. Then I stopped for a moment. I was sure I heard something. Voices, I thought. But I, I couldn't make out plainly because of the wind. Couldn't make out whether they were coming from the top of the hill or from inside. Somewhere inside the hill itself, voices singing or calling or something. I wasn't frightened at all at first, and I remember walking farther up to see where the sounds were coming from, and the farther up I went, the more it seemed the voices were from all around me, from below as well as above. Then, suddenly, you know all those strange old rocks around the top of that hill? Well, beside one of those rocks, no one believed me when I told the story later, or made out they didn't believe me. Well, what I saw was a hand whole arm reaching up from out of the earth. Now, they, they say that the hill had once been a burial place in ancient times and that a skeleton arm could very well be unearthed by the rains. But that was no skeleton arm. There was flesh on it, dark and old and long nails. 
believe me or not, but I say I saw that arm reaching up out of the earth. And it wasn't a dead arm. When I came nearer, I saw its fingers moving like it was in pain, like it was beckoning me to help it. The rest of it, out of the earth. Now, I, I told you that I wasn't afraid, and that's true, until I got so close that it almost touched me. But then, then suddenly, a terrible fear overcame me, and I ran, ran all the way down the hill. And I have never once set foot on that place since. Well, now, it was only a short while after that that the events I was going to tell you about began. Uh, careful, Fanny, not too close to the fire with that yarn. That's better. Well, now, up at the far end of that lane, let, let me see, is it on, is it on the right or on the left-hand side as you go up? Oh, yes, the left-hand side. You'll find a little patch of bushes and rough ground in the field, and something like a broken old hedge round about, and the kind of gooseberry and currant bushes I told you about growing among it. Well, that means there was a cottage stood there, of course. And in that cottage, there lived a man named Davis. This Mr. Davis lived very much to himself. He didn't work for any of the farmers, having, as it seemed, enough money of his own to get along. But he'd go to town on market days. And one day he came back from market and brought a young man with him. And this young man and he lived together for some long time and, and went about together. And whether he just did the work of the house for Mr. Davis, or whether Mr. Davis was his teacher in some way, nobody seemed to know. He was a pale young man, and hadn't much to say for himself. Well, now, what did those two men do with themselves? <laughs> of course, I can't tell you half the foolish things that the people got into their heads. And we know, don't we, that you mustn't speak evil when you aren't sure it's true, even when people are dead and gone. But as I said, those two were always about together, late and early, and there's one walk that they take regularly to the place on the hill that I just told you about, and it was noticed that in the summertime they'd camp out there all night. I remember once my father, that's your great-grandfather, told me he had spoken to Mr. Davis and his young friend one evening when he met them on the road. He asked them why they were so fond of going up there. Why? Why, sir? It's a wonderful old place, and I've always been fond of the old-fashioned things and when him, my boy here and me are together there, it seems to bring back the old times the plain. Well, it may suit you, but I shouldn't like to be in a lonely place like that in the middle of the night. Oh, sir, we don't want for company at such times. That is to say, Mr. Davies and me is company enough for each other, ain't it so, Master? Aye. Then there's a beautiful air there of a summer night. And you can see all the country round under the moon. Oh. It looks so different, seemingly, from what it do in the daytime. Them bars there, the mounds, all over up there. Now, what would you think was the purpose of them, sir? Why, I've heard, Mr. Davis, that they're all graves. And I know when I've had occasion to plough up one, there's always been some old bones and pots turned up. But whose graves they are, I don't know. People say the ancient Romans were all about this country at one time. But whether they buried the people like that, I can't tell. Ah, oh, to be sure. Well, they look to me to be older like than the ancient Romans. And dress different. Uh, that's to say, according to the pictures the Romans was in armor. 
And you didn't never find no armor, did you, sir? And not by what you said. Well, I don't know that I mentioned anything about armor. But it's true, I don't remember to have found any. But you'll talk as if you'd seen them, Mr. Davis. Seen them, sir? That would be a difficult matter after all these years. Not but what I should like well enough to know more about them old times and people, and what they worshipped and all. Worshipped? Well, I dare say I've heard and read about them heathens and their worship. Torture and dances, behavior lewd and ungodly, sacrifices. Oh, torture and dances, you say? Sacrifices, you say? Lewd and ungodly behavior. What manner do you suppose? Read about them, you say. Heathen, you say. That was the only time my father had much talk with Mr. Davis. It was around that time that people believed some sort of meetings went on at night time on that hill, and that those who went there were up to no good. And there was known to be others besides Mr. Davis and his young man, I mean. And it was only guessed what really went on. Not so close to the fire with the yarn, Fanny dear. Now mind what I say, else you find yourself going up in flames. Don't stretch that skein so, Charles. Hold it loosely. That's it. Well, now. Well, I suppose it was a matter of three years that Mr. Davis and this young man went on living together. And then, all of a sudden, a dreadful thing happened. I don't know if I ought to tell you what it was. Oh, yes, oh, please, 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 please. Well, then. You must promise not to get frightened and go screaming out into the middle of the night. Oh, no, we won't. No, we won't. Oh, of course we will. One morning, very early, towards the turn of the year, I think it was in September, one of the woodmen had gone up to his work near the hillside, just as it was getting light. And what he saw nearly drove the poor man out of his wits. He dropped everything he was carrying and, and ran as hard as ever he could straight down to the parsonage and woke up old Mr. White. Uh, parson, uh, Parson White, uh, Parson White. What is it, man? Oh. Quiet glory be, what's the matter with you? Oh, Parson, sir, come with me quickly. It's oh, horrible, it's horrible. Man. Oh, but you must come with me to see what's been done. What's been done? Calm, it's really kind, darling. Tell me what it is, man. What have you seen? Oh, in the little woods near the hill. Yes, yes. Oh, so I was going up to my work, and I saw it in a clearing. A white thing, what looked like through the mist. A white Like a man. Like a man, sir. And when I came near, I saw it was a man. Mr. Davies, young man, sir. What? Oh, he, he, he was dressed in a sort of white gown, sir. Oh, yes, he was, and he was hanging by his neck to the limb of the biggest oak. Quite, quite dead, sir. Glory be. But, but, but the real horrible thing, sir, was his hands. His hands. Oh, oh, I don't think there were any hands. What? No, I, I couldn't rightly see for, for the blood, sir. Oh, the blood. May the Lord bless us and save us. What a sight to behold! A demon's work, if ever I saw on himself before us. His left hand chopped clean off. Oh, if clean we can call it. Maybe cleansed would be the word for it. Cleansed. But for the right. Blood! Blood! Uh, oh, there, Parson. Oh. There, just below. I hadn't seen before. Look, sir. What? Oh! The hatchet! Oh, the hatchet on the ground the here! Stuck with blood and bits of flesh. Horrible. Oh, some flies on it already. Oh, don't touch it. Don't oh, touch it. Do you think, sir, that this is a murder? It's an abomination. Oh. An abomination, but I think it's his own act. I think so. You see here the rock over here? Huh? He, he could have jumped from it and. 
Oh. Yes, it must have been. You can see the saints, the blood, the hand. Aye, sir, tis the hand where he chopped it off. And there it lies. Oh, a sight, sir. Such a thing. Oh, and do you see, sir? Do you see it is grasping something? So it is. What with all so. the blood can you make it out? Oh. It seems, it seems flesh. It seems part of a living body. Oh, sir. What do you think? God's mercy. I think it's no living body whose part this be. This is Mr. Davis's man, you say, on the tree. Ah, oh, yes. I think we'd best, best find uh, what we can of of Mr. Davis himself. Oh, yes, sir. We'd better hurry, Come I think. Now. Come on, Come. sir. The cottage is down there. Oh, uh, on the hill, you see, in the, in the field. Well, now, the door of the cottage stood wide open. And the two men rushed in, not knowing what horrors to expect. Uh, Mr. Davis! Uh, Mr. Davis! Mr. Davis! When they came to the little room which served as a parlour... Oh! Bless us and save us! What they saw! Oh, they would not forget the sight for the rest of their lives! What did they see? There, in the centre of the room... The work of the devil's own devil! ...was a table that had been set up as a kind of altar or place of torture and stretched across his feet in clamps attached to the foot and his wrists held at the corners above his head, spread out, naked, facing upwards, lay Mr. Davis. His body almost in shreds from a whip which lay beside him, a tangle of blood and flesh. But the worst of it, oh, the worst of it, the work of the axe. Just below the breastbone, the body had been sliced as far down and torn open, and inside the axe had hacked and slashed away. A part of the spine stuck up, but nothing else was recognisable except the blood. Oh, the blood everywhere. And the strangest thing of all... Do you see the, uh, the face, Woodman? Aye, sir, the most horrible part. A mark on it, the eyes staring up, oh. the mouth open into a terrible grin. Oh! oh. Did you see that twitch? Yes. The man, man can't still be alive. Oh, and no, breathing. And, and trying to speak, it seemed. Oh. Both men leaned close to hear and swore later what they heard. Though no one could make sense of it, but they swore they saw the mouth move and the words barely audible come forth. <sighs> Again, again, more, more, more. Well, now, Fanny, you're shivering, dear, and so close to the fire. Uh, you should fetch a woolly from upstairs, dear. No, Granny, I'm not cold. Well, here, you put Granny's shawl round you anyway. That's it now. Well, did, did they bury Mr. Davis? Did, did they bury Mr. Davis? Oh, that they did. And his young man together. That very night not in hallowed ground, as Parson White would have none of that, but up on the hill. And it was no proper burial either. Some of the men just dug a hole large enough and gathered rocks. Only those few men needed for the task were there. They heard the bell. It's not coming from the church, Parson. No, we can all hear. It's coming from inside the hill, for the coming of them of their own. Aye, Parson, 
And when we dug the grave, we could swear, but for the darkness and only the candles lighting, we struck things that screamed and pulled themselves deeper into the earth. Oh, we've, we've no place here. This isn't the Lord's ground. Quickly now, throw the bodies in. Cover them with rocks and spread. Be away now, come on. And they did. But it wasn't exactly the end of the story. What what happened then, Granny? What's that sound, Granny? Do you hear it? Ah, the sound. I'm coming to that. Well, next morning, some of the town folks passing by saw those strange black patches on the road leading up the hill like a trail. They, they look to be alive like. Oh, how could they be? But they shimmer so. And when they went closer. Oh, God preserve us. Flies. Thousands of huge flies. Oh, look what they've been feeding on. Patches of blood from those bodies that were rolled out last Why, night. Why, where did they come from? Oh, there's never been so many flies about. Oh, look! Lifting up all along! Oh, the sky is black with them! Oh, oh, the the oh, they found the women swollen beyond recognition, almost changed in shape, you might say looking more like them horrible half-animal monsters you see pictures of in ancient books. But almost as fast as they came, they were gone. The blood cleaned from the road, and as some folks swore, taken back by the flies into the hill. Now, Charles. Yes, Granny. And Fanny. Yes, Granny. Now, I want you to pay special attention to what I'm going to tell you. You remember my saying about them blackberry bushes, not to pick a single blackberry? Yes, yes, Granny. Well, from what I'm going to tell you now, you can judge for yourselves. Now, I said those flies went back into the hill, or wherever they came from, that wasn't the end of it. Some of them is always seen about up there. And it was one day, while I was courting your grandfather, we were walking up there among those very bushes, and one of them berries, at least I thought it was, seemed to come alive in my hand. I felt the sting that couldn't open my hand. Now I can only say what I know. A numbness went over me. I heard sounds. Then something like a terrible whip. I can't remember all that happened. But your grandfather says he had to hold me from doing things. And it was his own words that the very devil had gotten into me. Later, when I opened my hand and wiped, the awful insect away. I couldn't tell whether the blood had come from me or the demon itself. So you both mind what I say and find your blackberries down in the hollow near the creek. Oh, but, but look at the time. Off with you, off with you to bed. Oh, oh Granny. Granny! Off with you now, Granny. Can can we have a candle tonight? A candle? Certainly not. Now off with you, and and Granny will come and tuck you in later. Go on. Oh, oh Granny, oh, and, and Granny. Charles, 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 don't you frighten your sister up oh. there in the dark, or there'll be no more stories for you. Uh, mother, what's that? Oh, I've just sent them off to bed. Oh, you've been telling them those stories again. You, you know, Mother, that none of them is true. Where do you get them from? Well, some of it's true, and the rest... Well, it's 
like I take hold of something and pull gently, and the rest comes up all of its own. Mm. Well, well, I couldn't tell you where it comes from. Uh, I'm going to my bed, too. Uh, you'll see to locking up, Mother. Uh, good night. Oh, I'll see to it. Good night, Sonny. Just sit a little while longer. Where? Ah, where do they come from? Where? That was, we hope, an evening's entertainment by Montague Rhodes, James. Pat Franklin played Granny. Her children were played by Marion Winch and Arlene Sagan. The narrator and Parson White were played by Bernard Mays. Don LePage was Mr. Davis. And Frank Laverdi played Granny's father. Mr. Davis's young man and the woodman and the snoring father were played by Eric Bowersfeld, and the two ladies who were eaten by the flies were Arlene Sagan and Pat Franklin. The technical production for the story was by John Whiting, and the adaptation was by Eric Bowersfeld. And now, good night. Yes, good night. As Granny said... Off to bed with you, and no candle tonight. No candle, no light to interrupt the delicious darkness. Oh, and uh, happy Halloween. Thank you for joining me in the Nerve Rackin' Auditorium. And I hope you'll come again. But now it's time for you to rejoin the, uh, real world. I am Lord Bloodraw, and I'll be waiting here for you in the shadows of your mind until the next time you seek the darkness. Good night. <laughs>